burden for him to explore this glorious doctrine of the atonement and to understand what it is to fight for understanding and to fight for our lives in Christ's name. Amen. The atonement, the doctrine of the atonement. Um, our next chapter in Wayne Brunham's um, systematic theology and very important topics, right? We're understanding of the atonement. A correct understanding is going to correct understanding of the gospel and salvation. Incorrect understanding of the atonement is going to lead to a false gospel that we sense. Um, so what we want to do is kind of explore this doctrine and what it means. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Paul says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Underline that part that Christ died for our sins. That is the essence of the doctrine of the atonement. Wayne Grudem, the book defines the atonement as this, the atonement. It's the work of Christ in his life and death to earn our salvation. Very simple book. It is the work of Christ, and the Lord told his work of Christ, and he did both in his life and his death to earn or accomplish our salvation. And so we want to kind of get into this in, in a couple of things. What does the word atonement mean? Now the word atonement, right? What two words do you see in the word atonement? Act one, right? It's actually, it is back to its original, we'll look at the English term here, and in the Anglo-Saxon original meaning, it was act one, right? To be at one, at oneness. And, and the idea of atonement is to reconcile two parties who are at war, and, or, or who are estranged, and something has to be done. It's the act of doing something to atone, to bring together two parties that are separated or estranged. That's the background, English background at the very least, of the word atonement. So when we think of atonement, we think of reconciliation. We think of men being reconciled to God. And there's a theological background to that, right? See the doctrine of God, that he's our creator, he's holy, he's righteous, and he will judge all mankind. The doctrine of man, that man was made in God's image, but because of sin, he lived in production to God's moral laws. He was only depraved and deserving of judgment. And the doctrine of the person of Christ. This is all leading up to where we are today. We've covered all these doctrines already. We, last we left off, Tom wrote us a great lesson on the person of Christ. So therefore, we see that without Christ, without the perfect God-man, who's 100% God and 100% man, could not be accomplished. Now, what makes the need for atonement? Why is the atonement necessary? For several reasons. Number one, the universality of sin. I want to look up Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm 14 3. Can I get a volunteer to read Psalm 14 3? And can I get a volunteer to read Ecclesiastes 7 20? Everyone's lost, right? All for us. So it's the universality of sin, original sin, has 
tainted, has ruined us. Um, and so therefore we're all criminals of God's eyes. Ecclesiastes 7, 20, who's got that? There is not a just man on earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Not one person on the earth who does good and sinneth not. Finally, Romans 3, 26 tells us, 3, 23, rather, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Romans 3, 11, no one does good, no, not even one. So, so we see that sin has rendered all of us incapable of um, doing anything to atone for our sins and to get right with God. The second thing that makes the need for atonement important is the seriousness of sin. Seriousness of sin is in Isaiah 59, 2. Um, where God says, because of your sin, it separates, it puts a separation between you and I. Um, Proverbs 15, 29, can I get a hold to you? Proverbs 15, 29. Tony, can you read Proverbs 15, 29? And um, also Habakkuk 1, 13, is how too many can you read that for us? God is far from the wicked, right? So, so sin causes... Uh, 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 spiritual dimension of separation between men and God. Go ahead, come to me. 13. So there the, the prophet is, my God, you're so pure to be moved. God has let the sin go. Not, but the statement is perfect there that God is so pure and so holy to keep right? And so sin not only is a universal problem we all have, but it's it's an offensive problem. It, it's a problem that, that creates a major problem between us and God is hostility. And thirdly is man's inability to deal with sin. Uh, Tanya, can you read Psalm 40, 49, 7 through 9? And Marcia, can you look up Romans 
literally means to cover up. Love covers a multitude of sins. Word is being used. Um, it has the idea of that sin needs to be covered in order for God and man to, to be reconciled. And so um, sin creates shame, creates the guilt. But in order to be restored relationship, sin needs to be covered with and dealt with. Uh, also, this word is used, um, translated purified times. Right? So when we look at this word, first, what is the first instance where we see atonement in the Bible, where we see sin in cover? Anybody know? <laughs> garden of Eden. Right? What happened in the garden? Jesus covering for Adam and Eve from Genesis 3.21. After God rendered his judgment, but before he banished them from the garden, says he made animal skins to cover them, to cover their nakedness and their shame. Right? And so it wasn't just clothing, but symbolically there was a lot there. In order for them to wear animal skins, now they need to be sacrificed. Blood needed to be shed. And now blood. See, this is where we have to understand that God wants to show us something important. In order for atonement to take place, the cost is death. The cost is a life. A life must be given for a life. There must be a death for death. And this establishes what we call substitutionary atonement, uh, uh, vicarious atonement. Now, we understand that the Bible tells us that blood is the symbol of life. This goes back to Noah, right? After the after um, the blood, God establishes the covenant man. And, and what does it say? You shall not shed blood, and whoever sheds blood, by then his blood shall, shall be shed. Why? He's established the principle prior to the flood. Violence was upon the face of the earth. There was no regard to human life. There was no dignity for human life. People were murderous and cruel and ruthless. And this is the first establishment of government God wants to make it clear that there's dignity in human life. You can't just kill people. If you kill someone, then you forfeit your life. Why? Because there's life in the blood. <laughs> Correct. Well, of course, when you murder someone else, they're creating a, an image bearer. But the idea of blood is there because there is life in the blood. In the Bible, blood symbolizes life. When blood is shed, life is over. But when you have your blood, you have life. The blood is symbolic of life. E.J. Crawford makes this comment that life is given to life, the life of the innocent, the life of the sinful offerer. This is the idea of substitutionary atonement. A death must occur in the place of the sinner. And so we see that blood was given to this very purpose. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus um, chapter 17. Leviticus 17, the presentation of Jacob Tolman. You mean 16? No, we're just not up there. No, we're going to 17 now. We'll go back to 16. We're going to go to Let's start there. Uh, chapter 17, 11 says this. Well, I'm going to start in verse 10 so we'll get the full context, right? It says, if anyone in the house of Israel, or the strangers who surge among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against the person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. God forbids eating blood in the Old Testament. Eating blood is, is connected with 
pagan ritual sacrifices. By the way, by leaving the whole obsession with vampires and pure uh, um, cult, culture, it's not real vampires, Contrary to the little talk, God doesn't call us to drink blood as Because in the blood is life, and that's the whole point set here. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I'm giving it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger or sojourns among you eat blood. And so blood is given to for the purpose to give atonement. Then you go back to Leviticus chapter 1 and 7, you see all the different sacrifices that are listed. All the sacrifices that are listed, particularly the sacrifices, you are to actually slaughter the animal, you throw Pour the blood into a, into a little uh, um, and you would dip the blood into the four horns of the altar and pour out the blood as a offering before God. The blood covers the sin. You see, what happens is that sacrificial animal becomes our representative in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Our sins are imputed, and when the animal dies, they are receiving the wages of sin in their flesh. And the blood that they give is their life, and that's what gives us life. Do you understand this concept? And it begins to make sense in the gospel, right? When Jesus says, you can have no part of me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, what is it saying? Unless you believe in me, you will not have eternal life because I'm giving my blood for you that you may live. I'm dying in place for you, and the blood I do, which is in my life, I give so that you may live. That whole idea of being joined to Christ, being buried with him to death, and raised into new life is all bound up in the atoning sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. So we see, and this goes even back to the Passover. Right in the Passover, when God was put into the Israel of Egypt, and God said, um, you, you, you shall slaughter right, a lamb without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. The covenant had this Bible study the other night, points to the sinlessness of Christ. And you shall take the blood and pour it and paint it over the doorpost of your home when the angel of death passes through. You'll see the blood and it will pass over your house. Praise God, the blood of the land covers us. I sent a video to men by D.A. Carson. I think it was at the Lake Air Conference. He was speaking, was it Lake Air or was it? I can't remember, but he's speaking at one of the conferences and he's. This is kind of uh, an allegory, or just a story, it's fictional, but two guys were living in, in uh, Egypt during Passover. And one guy saying, you know, Moses told us we've got to paint blood on the door. Do so, the angel of death, and Passover. Do you really believe that? The guy says, yeah, I, I believe it. I'm fully confident, I trust and believe. But what Moses says, and, and, and I'm not worried about it, I'm going to sleep good tonight. The guy says, well, I'm a little nervous, I don't know, it seems a little strange, it's blood the door into death, look at all the things that have gone on right now, like, it's kind of scary. I'm not sure, I'm going to, I think I'm going to stay open, I'm a little worried. Here's the question. 
Which of those two will be saved on the night of Passover? resting on how strong their faith is. Their salvation is based on the blood of the Lamb that covers them. And you see, that's the same thing when we talk about atonement. It is the blood of the Lamb, it is the blood of Christ that has been shed for us. And in that blood is like it through him. We have eternal life. Christ fulfilled this testament for us. Let's turn to Hebrews 9, 22. <coughs> <coughs> There's no remission of sins. Sins cannot be found or cannot be forgiven and cannot be remitted apart from the shedding of blood. But now we run into no problem. Are the blood of bulls and goats and lambs is it enough for us? Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Five through eighteen. Can someone read that? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings have not desired. But a body have you prepared for me. In birth offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Very good. What does verse 4 say? For it is impossible for blood of bulls and bulls to take away sin. Impossible. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament were dead to be shadows. And we go say Colossians 2.13, they're shadows, they're, they're types. They're prophetic types to point us to the reality. In faith, the Israelites offered the sacrifices, trusting in God's word and provision to atone and cover sins. It wasn't the blood of the bull and the goat that atoned for the sin, but it was the promise of God. And by doing so, it was an act of faith. And it pointed to the necessity for a mediator, for one of our own. Another human being who is like us but not like us. Someone who will stand there. Someone who lived the perfect righteous life and shed his blood. And it's only in the blood of Christ that we can find true redemption. In the Mosaic Law on the Day of Atonement, the purpose of the atonement was, go ahead, brother.
Our salvation was bought not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Unspotted, unblemished, pure. Jesus came to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice of sin. Mark 10 45 tells us the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. When he institutes the Lord's Supper, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is given for you. Jesus came to die, to die the death that we deserve. Right? There is a, there is a penalty for sin. Sin demands justice. And the only sufficient penalty for sin is death, eternal death, away from the presence of God. Satisfied that. Not only does he die for us and absorb the wrath of God that we so rightly deserve, but he gives us the gift of his life and his blood. He rose from the dead to give us resurrection life. This is the mystery of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5 21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to keep sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. I mean, just think of that. Think of the, the reality that Christ, who was horrified by sin, who, who dwells in holiness with the Father, to become sin, to become the very thing that he detests. I think that's what one of the things I run in the department of the assembly, the point of I think. I think that was so overcoming. We never received the best one to show us, and that would become sin. I think that is what brought the Lord out of him if he got something. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 3 25. Romans 3.25 says it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just justifier of the one who has faith in I'm sorry, 26 in my sight. I'm sorry, 3.23. Oh, Satan, the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. His word propitiation is very important. Anybody know what the word propitiation means? Huh? To appease and satisfy. Very good. To appease and satisfy. That is a very specific definition. The word to appease and satisfy. It's a word that is often used in the pagan world. Uh, when the pagans worship their pagan gods, they have to appease. We think of appease, but what do we think of? We think of like, you know, we think of the Neville Chamberlain appeasing by signing a peace decree. That's when we think of the word appeasement, that you have this unruly evil that you have to, you have to placate in order to prevent an outbreak of, of, of evil. Now, the pagans thought of this way, and it's interesting that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible to use this word not once, but several times. Um, it is used in uh, 1 John chapter 
um, uh, one first John chapter two two and chapter four and in Hebrews two seventeen. So in four occasions, biblical writers were inspired to use this word propitiate. And I think it's very important that we don't uh, ignore or overlook what took place. Why Jesus' death on the cross propitiated and brought appeasement to God the Father. You see, it was absolutely necessary that sin must be paid for. There is a penalty for sin. Sin cannot be swept under the carpet, cannot simply be glossed over. It must be paid for. There's a price for it, and the only price is death. And so the Father's justice, the Father's wrath, must be satisfied. It's not because the Father is this unruly evil that must be placated, but it's because his justice must be satisfied. He must uphold the integrity of his glory and honor and make a demonstration to the world of the ugliness of sin. The death of his son on the cross and the horror of that and the scandal of that is to show how disgusting sin is. That's funny what he said about permission. Go ahead, Pastor. I never forgot. One more time. That word yes is to activate, as the sister said, but you said, the wrath of God was satisfied. Now I want you to go to, um, before because I'm not seeing how it's teaching between both propitiation and expiation. You see, because in Christ, there he not only propitiate, he did it But propitiate literally means to, to placate and satisfy the wrath of God. So God is no longer angry. He turned away the wrath of God. He turned it away from us and turned it to himself. Now I want you to think of this. The word is stereotype in Greek. The word that's used to propitiate. That same word, hysterion, or its root word, if you read the Greek Old Testament, Septuagint, which is the Bible that the first century Jews read, they read Hebrew, they read, they read Greek translations. Just like English is our common language today, Greek, Queen Greek was the common language of first century Jews. Only rabbis read, you know, read the deep. Common language was created. So the common Bible was the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. We talked about the day of Atonement and the mercy seat. We went into the Holy of Holies. The word that was chosen to use to translate the mercy seat from Hebrew to Greek is the same word, hysteria. Just as a high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the goat upon the mercy seat, signifying God's forgiveness and improvement, Christ is our hysterion. He's our mercy seat. He shed his blood. Oh, us acceptable to the Father. That's amazing when you think about it, isn't it? But not only did he propitiate, he also expiated our sin. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, 
word expiate means to be have our slate wiped clean. For our sins have paid the price, and just as the goat that was offered and shed his blood is symbolized in propitiation, there's also the scapegoat of the day of atonement. There was a second goat. And the high priest, when he laid his hands on the head of the, the living goat, and through his laying on the hands would impute all the sins of Israel onto that goat. Then they would let the goat run into the wilderness, never to be seen again. To symbolize that the goat is carrying those sins far away. The goat is your sin bearer. Same way, Jesus Christ bore our sins and carried them far away, never to be seen. Hallelujah. Amen. Turn to Isaiah 53. The Lord, no wonder Isaiah 53 is such it's, it's such a powerful passage. Why it's used so often in the New Testament? Because it's a prophetic word 500 years before Christ that captures all of the essence of the system, the sacrificial system of atonement, and points to one who will fulfill all that. The Messiah. Look at Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Can you not see it? How that portrays the atoning work of Christ? Can you not see that he bore our sins? He wasn't pierced for he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. It was all because of us. We put him there. Yet through his wounds we are healed and made peace with God. All we, verse 6, like sheep have gone astray, we turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's our sin bearer. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, and opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away in his first generation. Who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Did not Christ come to die for the sins of many? Did he not come? Was not his purpose to be our sin bearer? Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord crushing, put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. Will the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of the anguish of the soul he shall see and be satisfied. Knowledge, by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous. He shall. <laughs> All the New Testament theology wrapped up right there. That's it. 
Now, I wonder why, for a friend of mine, went to a Jewish synagogue some years ago for a funeral, he found Isaiah 53 missing from every copy of the scripture. Not something the Jew wants you to read. So Christ not only propitiates, but he expiates. He's our vicarious substitute. He's our biker, right? They often refer to the Pope as the biker of Christ. The word biker means someone to stand ahead of. Pope is not the biker of Christ. There is biker of Christ, but Christ is our biker. He vicariously stood in our place. He was our substitute. Made atonement for us. For us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He died for us. Lived for us. By the way, this is important that I bring this out. It's not just his death. Not just through his death we find atonement, but it's through his life. Theologians refer to this as passive obedience versus active obedience. His passive obedience is that which we just spoke about. It's his atoning. A death on the cross is the most significant. But it's his active obedience that's utterly necessary too. His active obedience is that of his, of his sinlessness. Who else can say, I always do what's pleasing to the Father? Our been study those Bibles for two weeks. Who else can say, who else can say I always do what's pleasing to the Father. Jesus Christ never once sinned. He never sinned in his thoughts. He never had an impure thought. He never sinned with his words. He never uh, used his tongue to hurt anyone. And he never did anything sinful. He never did anything by omission or commission. Christ lives a perfectly righteous life, which is impossible for any human being to live. And he did it for you and me. Why? Because we need merit. Jesus' death on the cross is enough to keep us out of hell. Right? We avoid the pain of eternal death because of the blood of Christ. But to say that Jesus died for me and I escaped hell is not enough. I want to go to heaven. And in order to go to heaven, I need merit. And there is nothing that you or I could do to merit heaven, to, to be rewarded by God. And so our merit is based not on our works. Our merit is not based on a treasury of merit, which the Pope will dig up some merit from the saints and give it to you out of Christ. But our merit is the act of obedience of Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled the law of God in our place. That's why in Adam, all who are in Adam died, and all who are in Christ lived. You're one of two feral heads. You're either the feral head of Adam, in which the whole human race is dead, or your feral head is Christ, who perfectly obeyed God. He stands before us as our high priest in heaven. He said in Matthew 5 17, I do not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. So therefore, we are no longer under the law of Moses, we're under the law of Christ. We're under grace. That's amazing. Oof, I'm, I, I get really hyped up on this kind of stuff. 
um, any questions or comments? I know I, I've been preaching. I teach my preaching. Go ahead. What are you talking about? That's in those 30 years, silent years, praying for us for righteousness. There's nothing said about it except that I want to ask you when you're 12 years old. Was 
great thing too. That veil weighed about five tons. The thing was huge. No human being could carry that part. God tore it apart to say, it's over. He gives his own son. Oh, what did God withhold from us? He 
That's the thing. We're in a world with God. We're in a world who owe Him, but we can't pay Him. So He sends His Son to pay the price for us so that we can have a reconciled relationship with us. It's the same. It's grace. It's mercy. Now, I just hit me. I thought, we are so harsh with one another. I am not nearly as gracious with others as God is gracious with me. I'm glad God doesn't deal with me the way that I deal with others. But I don't say that in pride. I say that I, I need to learn to be more gracious. That's the Alright, some other um, false news we've talked about. The moral influence theory. The moral influence theory. This was held by Origen in 185 and 254. One of the early church fathers, and um, there was no vicarious suffering. Or it was me that. Um, oh no, this, this, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. The more wonderful story was told by Peter Avalard, 1079, was a middle age guy, uh, middle age was a period theologian. The moral influence theory, uh, he says that Christ didn't suffer on the cross. There was no penalty, there was no vicarious death. But rather, Jesus died as an example. So the idea of the moral influence theory is that God didn't actually require payment, but rather that Christ's death was an example of God's sacrificial love for us, and it should invoke in us a thankful response. Dr. Lorraine Butler says this, the advocates of the moral influence theory are never tired of ridiculing the idea that God must be propitiated. They give no hint in scripture of the doctrine of the subjective effects of sin on the human heart by which is alienated from God and unable to respond to any appeal of right motives, however powerful. They see no impassable gulf between the holy God and sinful man, and consequently they see no reason why satisfaction should be made to divine justice. Essentially, you're dealing with people that think humanity is by nature good. Oh, people, we're, we're generally good by nature. You know, they're not seeing the context original sin of the human heart. And I'm sure you've probably met people that think this way. I have. You see it a lot in Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, at least progressive liberal strands of it, which is pretty much everything I hear. The next one, the next one is Okay, next one we're going to look at governmental theory. Governmental theory uh, was first held by Hugo Grotius in 1583 to 1645. And uh, according to the government theory, God doesn't need a payment for the penalty of sin. God's omnipotent, all powerful, and he can easily wipe away sin and just wink it away. Thus, Christ's death didn't actually pay a penalty for sin. Rather, it showed us what the penalty would be like if God didn't fire for That's another theory. Guys died in this theory to show how much God hated sin. It was meant to make us see how awful sin is and drive us to obey his law. This theory would have us believe that the cross is but a symbol that would teach the way an example of God's hatred for sin. But again, this is insufficient. Christ didn't atone for our sin, if he didn't die and pay the penalty, then who does pay the penalty? Again, we're asking God to just 
snap his finger and make all sin disappear? No sense. Then um, the next one I'm going to look at is the ransom to Satan. The ransom to fury. And um, this was uh, the one held by origin from the early church fathers. And this was that, right, we're talking about the ransom that we pay for our redemption. You know, Jesus Christ paid the ransom to Satan, right? Satan is the God of this world. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan said, all these kingdoms are given to me, to God for me, I'll give these kingdoms. So the idea is that we as lost humanity belong to Satan. Where in order to be redeemed from Satan, Jesus has to pay the ransom to Satan himself. By the way, this is, this is actually popularized by a very popular book, Christian author. Anybody know who it is? This theory. Think, think of a Christian book, case book, that's turned to a moment. Chronicles of Narnia? Chronicles of Narnia, right? Who was the ransom paid to in, in, in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? The witch! Who represents him? Satan! Edmund had to be redeemed, and the ransom had to be paid. Edmund had to pay the price to the evil witch. So yes, Lewis believed in the, in the ransom theory. It's unbiblical. The idea that payment would have to be paid to Satan gives him far more power than the Bible says. It falsely asserts that Satan rather than God is the one who requires penalty and the payment for sin. It was widespread in the early church. And finally, finally is Not almost this theory, but not on the other notes. Example theory. Example theory. And example theory was by Foster Sonus. Uh, he was the leader of the group in 1604. Again, he said that God didn't require a payment to penalty, but rather that Christ's death was an example for us how to suffer well. Trust God to the point of death. All of these theories, all these false views of atonement, rob God of the glory yes. of showing His love and how much He loved us to give us His Son as us. It robs the gospel of its power. It robs the blood of Jesus of its ability to cleanse. It undermines the whole of the New Testament. Finally, one last error, that is the Apostles' Creed error. The Apostles' Creed, similar to the Nicene Creed, it often says that Jesus died and descended into hell. How many times have you heard that in the Catholic Church? Right, here's, here, I'm going to make this easy. First of all, the Apostles' Creed was written by men. It's not the Bible. That's number one. Number two, all of the earliest manuscripts of the Apostles' Creed did not contain the phrase sent into hell. The first manuscript to actually say that was in 650 AD. That's 650 years after Christ. All the documents preceding that 
do not contain the phrase descending into hell. So therefore, what do we say? And this goes back to basic biblical hermeneutics, right? <clears throat> this is clearly not the usual manuscripts. However, there was one manuscript in 350 AD that says Jesus descended into Hades. Now sometimes in the medieval period, Hades and hell could be confused. Hades and hell are two totally different places. Hell is the eternal fire and punishment of God, where people go to suffer forever away from the presence of God. Hades is a place of death. Hades is the place of, 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 of temporal, kind of like the holdover until we go to heaven. At least the was understood. It's the place of the dead. One manuscript was found that way, and in a sense, we know that Jesus went and preached the gospel after he died to those in Sheol. But more importantly, what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? This day you'll be with me in paradise. Forget about the Apostles' Creed. What does the testimony of Scripture tell us? It tells us that when Jesus gave up his breath, he said, into your hands, Father, I commit not to hell, but to the Father in the Lord's presence in paradise. So, First Peter, we talks about Jesus preached to their souls after his death, and he was speaking to those in Abraham's bosom, those who were held and reserved until that's a whole number of doctrine we get into the afterlife as eschatology. Um, he had the religion completely open until Christ died. All the Old Testament saints were, didn't experience the same way that we will experience when we die. And that's a whole other story. I'm going to say that for a minute. I don't want to bend your minds. So, why do people find the doctrine of penal substitution and vicarious going so offensive? Why do people have issues with this? All these bad people, why do people do this? Listen to this from John Scott. The proud human heart is the reason why. We insist on paying for what we have done. We cannot stand the humiliation of acknowledging our bankruptcy and allowing someone else to pay for us. The notion that if somebody else should be God himself is too much to take. We would rather perish than repent. We'd rather lose ourselves than go. Doctrine of the covenant is so important to us. I want you to appreciate the work of Christ more. Think about what it means to you. I also want you to think of this. Was Christ's atoning work enough to pay for your sins? Was it enough? Do you have a question if it's enough? You don't need to add anything to the work of Christ. Last but not least, I was well, I don't have time. But I'll just briefly mention, as Barbara said, when we talk about the extent of the tone, you can see the notes there. Christ died for all people and he died simply for the elect. I think the testimony of the scripture is quite clear. He died for the elect. Yeah. If Christ died for every human being, then every human being would go to heaven. If Christ died for every human being, but you'll go to hell because you rejected his offering, 
That means God would exact a double payment. Christ is going to pay for your sins and then you're going to pay for it. That would make God what? Unjust. And God is far from unjust that he would require double payment for sin. Could God have saved everyone in being? Absolutely. Is he required to save everyone? No. He's not required to save anyone. But out of love, God circled his love around a certain group of angels called the elect, which hopefully we're part of. And the work and the blood of Jesus covers our sins once and for all. Amen? Oh, I'm a mouthful. So much to say. Two, really, it was like two sermons in a row. My brain is a little fried right now. Any questions or comments before we close? Any comments? Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Oh, my. Brother Jimmy, can you close us in prayer today? I Thank you.